Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor. On today's show, we talk about whether a few drinks and some cake and cheese really constitute a party. No, not really. We'll be asking the trickier questions about whether Boris Johnson will ever truly be held to account for his crimes against this country. And rotten cops. We ask what the excoriating Louise Casey report means for the Metropolitan Police. What can it do to win back our trust? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, what's the most remarkable thing that's happened in our lives? Before we start, a quick reminder that Ian Dunt is under the spotlight for Podcasters Question Time, live on Zoom next Thursday the 30th of March, for Patreon people only. Search Patreon Oh God What Now to sign up and put your question to the king of Doritos lasagne himself. (laughs) Not guaranteed that he will actually be eating a Doritos lasagne during this question time, but I will suggest it. Now, let's meet the panel. First up, it's Chief Exec of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Roz. And I have it on good authority that Ian may or may not be quite hungover on the 30th. Listeners, Mm. don't go easy on him. Punish him for being naughty the day before. Gosh, well, I'm not sure what that's about, but perhaps I'll find (laughs) out. We've had the vote today on the Stormont break, and it passed easily, of course, because Labour was supporting it. But the DUP voted against it. Their leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, has said he's not against the Windsor Agreement per se, just the break. What happens now? Are the party going to stop boycotting the Stormont Assembly? I will answer that just before that. Um, it didn't pass just because Labour supported it. It did go through on government votes. It was close-ish, but yes. uh, it is worth pointing out that he didn't have to rely on Stalmer to get it through entirely. Donaldson, 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 Donaldson always sort of sticks in my mouth when I have to describe him as the more moderate voice of the DUP because moderate in uh, our world and and the world of our listeners, he is not. But as we were led to believe, much more accepting of it all than some of the even more hardline members of the DUP. And he has confirmed uh, since the vote in a tweet that the DUP that, of course, has boycotted uh, the their participation in the devolved assembly for over a year now in protest at the existing post-Brexit pot- protocol would not return. Um, and he has said there is not a sustainable basis at this stage to enable us to restore Stormont. But I think the chances are that the DUP probably will return eventually. They're probably waiting for local elections in May, assessing how you know, to shore up their core vote and that kind of thing. The vote going through today in Westminster is certainly not looking likely to lead to a restoration of power sharing instalment imminently. Not good news. The ERG also came out against the Stormont break in the end, or most of it did. Is this a final show of defiance that actually costs them very little? And can we point out, by the way, the um, supreme irony of Steve Baker being kicked out <laughs> of the ERG WhatsApp group today? He is now a card-carrying member of the Europhilic Wokarati. He's noshing on his tofu as we speak. Uh, quite incredible, quite incredible. He's supporting his boss's Windsor framework um, uh, and likened Johnson's vote against it to the actions of a pound shop Nigel Farage which, yeah, a bit rich coming from, <laughs> from Brexit hard man himself. Um, and, yeah, booted out of all the ERG WhatsApps, um, uh, if, if we're to believe reports from the Telegraph. The ERG uh, had been briefing that as many as up to 35 
Conservative MPs could rebel, um, whether that's because they actually believed they had the numbers or because that's one more than the number that would force the government to rely on opposition's votes is anyone's guess. Um, I'd say that as things stand right now, the ERG have failed to flex their sway in the Conservative Party today pretty substantially. And Sunak now has empirical evidence that uh, their recommendation to vote no just doesn't sway legislation like it did in Theresa May's time. Next, it's Times Radio host and former Labour spin doctor Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello, Roz. Over the weekend, Donald Trump told his followers on Truth Social that he was about to be arrested. As I speak, he has not yet been arrested, but it is expected. A New York grand jury has found enough evidence to bring criminal charges against him for hush money paid to Stormy Daniels. Because this is a mad world, Trump hopes this arrest will work in his favour. And in fact, he is up in the polls. He's gaining on Ron DeSantis. How worried should we be about the chances of him running again? I think we should be running again and winning. I think we should be really worried about this. I would absolutely love it if the arrest kind of happened now. So on the split screen, watching Boris Johnson give his evidence, we saw saw old Donnie being put in the cuffs. And of course, he wants this arrest to be very performative. Like he wants them to cuff him. He's probably going to have someone buy him a bright orange jumpsuit that he can get into to just give like, you know, the full sort of Guantanamo oranges, the new black kind of vibe to the whole thing. But on a serious note, I do think we should be worried about this. I interviewed some people from the Lincoln Project on my uh, show a couple of months ago. And, you know, they did a really interesting job in the the run up to Joe Biden winning. You know, they, they formed, you know, people have got their criticisms about them, but they were quite a powerful force. And I spoke to one of them and they said, look, we should be really, really worried about this because the, the Republican Party is so lacking in talent at the moment, that if he did throw it all back, you know, on the kitchen table again, he he could have a good chance of winning. What he's hoping for is that lots of different candidates, sort of lots, lots of not very good candidates will come forward, which is entirely possible, and that he'll come through the middle. And they were really worried that he, A, could win the um, nomination, and B, he could come back again. I know, I know, I know. We all have just had a collective aneurysm. I know, but look, we just, you, sh- you can't rule anything out. Back with us is political reporter for The Times, Jerry Scott. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Rose. How are you? I'm good. You recently covered the British Kebab Awards, and I wanted to ask you about this event because, like the Westminster Dog of the Year competition, it's a fixture on the political calendar. And Angela Rayner and Nadine Zahar, we were both there. Why do MPs love? the British Kebab Awards so much? Does it make them feel kind of edgy and relatable that they might be the kind of person who'd, you know, be going to a kebab shop late at night? Oh, you say cover. I would use the word cover in the lightest possible terms for my attendance at the British Kebab Awards. Um, About an hour in, I can't say that I was in any fit state to be covering anything. Um, But, but (laughs) yeah. Covered in kebab juice. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. It is, um, it's strange. It's like a moth to a flame for kind of uh, Westminster dwellers, this Kebab Awards. And I think MPs do turn up um, because they want to be seen there because all of Westminster's great and good are there. I would um, dispute that Angela Rayner isn't the type of person who might have a kebab at the end of the night. I could definitely 
see that happening, but it does turn <laughs> into quite a political event. I mean, people get up on the stage this year, especially there was a lot of chat about corporation tax going up, um, support for you know Syria and Turkey after the earthquakes and things like that. So it really does turn into quite a political event. It's also absolute chaos. I went with someone this year who had never been before, who was absolutely amazed at the people like flitting between tables to speak to each other and, you know, an MP being called up to present an award and then not being there. And it's just, it's complete chaos. Um, and really, yes, is, a, is like you say, a staple in the Westminster calendar at this stage. Well, luckily, just for Naomi, there's even a vegan kebab category. Good. Finally, about bloody time, because there hasn't been before, I don't think. Yes, it's in Brighton, apparently. It's more cool. Of course it's in Brighton. Yes, of course it's in Brighton. Once again, political events are not fitting around our recording schedule. Boris Johnson is explaining to the Parliamentary Privileges Committee why Number 10 was an exceptional workplace full of exceptional people who couldn't follow the law to the letter and it never occurred to him at the time that they might not be doing so. In the 50-page dossier he submitted earlier this week, he said that yes, he did mislead the Commons when he claimed Downing Street parties broke no rules, but he never did it intentionally or recklessly. People who say we were parting in lockdown simply do not know what they are talking about. And these events weren't in my consciousness. I thought they were work events. He only made the rules. Naomi, how is Johnson coming out of this today? He looks like a petulant child who's getting angrier and angrier as uh, the the session goes on. Um, this is not a man that likes detail. This is not a man that likes scrutiny. This is not a man that likes to have to keep his own attention span on one thing for more than a few seconds. Um, and he's been in there four hours and is still there while we're recording. It's actually been unbearable to watch at points, very much tying himself in knots. At one point, he says, I'm concerned about the optics, not the rules. So uh, I think it's Yvonne Fovarg says, well, if the event was within the rules, why would you be concerned about the optics? So then he concedes that it might look as if that bring your own bottle garden party broke the rules. And he's been doxing the officials when their identity is meant to be protected. So at one point, you know, praised the officials who came up with the rules uh, that helped save lives during the pandemic. And a few minutes later, arguing it was not necessary or possible to implement them strictly in number 10. And I think the line that is sticking with me as somebody who had to suffer losing somebody during the pandemic, well, two family members for whom I couldn't be with, I couldn't say goodbye. Johnson said, I will believe until the day I die that it was right to go to farewell parties for colleagues. But yet, we were not allowed to say goodbye to loved ones. I th- I think he is going to come out of this looking very, very bad. Yeah, the word farewell carries a lot of weight here, doesn't it? Given the experiences yeah. a lot of people went through. Exactly. Jerry, Johnson says the photos we've all seen don't show parties, but just him briefly attending work drinks, up to a maximum of apparently 25 minutes, And that's why he too and his staff thought they were fine. And that matters because if he genuinely didn't realise that they were illegal, then he didn't mislead the commons. And that seems to be what his defence is relying upon. Perfect social distancing, he said, was impossible in number 10 because of the kind of building it was. How convincing has this defence been so far? Not very is the short answer, but to give you a longer answer. I mean, I think the big question that 
I keep coming back to is, you know, I covered these press conferences every day where Boris Johnson and other ministers stood at that podium and told the country what had to be done. If I, at one of those press conferences, had put my hand up and said, my company would like to hold farewell drinks for a very well-valued member of staff who's worked very hard over the last couple of months, can I? Can you possibly imagine that he would have said yes? I, I can't. You know, in this evidence that he's given today, he said there were mitigating measures in place, but don't worry, they were in the next room, so that's fine. Um, it doesn't really seem to add up to me. And the bit that, like I say, I keep coming back to is, was it reasonable? Can, are the public really going to believe that Boris Johnson thought that these were okay? I mean, his defence at the moment seems to be, I was too stupid to understand the rules that I myself had set out which I don't think is a convincing argument. I think the other important thing in all of this, and I've tried to make this point kind of repeatedly on the radio and television and stuff over the last few days, is people are getting very caught up on whether he deliberately misled the House. Now, I think that's quite easy for him to get off of. The other part that the committee is investigating is whether he was reckless in doing so. In other words, whether he should have known And I think it's quite difficult for him to get away from being the prime minister and being the man that set the rules to say, well, I couldn't have possibly known that this was wrong. So I couldn't have possibly misled the House. And I think that's probably where they're going to end up getting him on this. But no, look, it's not been a convincing argument so far. It's been very tense and cringy at times watching it. I found it quite uncomfortable. He's very tetchy. He's very wound up so far. As we're speaking, it's not over. I wonder if we're going to get some kind of, you know, massive argument before before the end of the session. Well, actually, he's he's apparently just said the garden party, the bring your own bottle party, was to boost staff morale because the cabinet secretary had resigned that day. But Mark Sedwell didn't resign for a month after the date of that party. So this is how wound up he is. Jerry, you're completely right. He is now losing control of the timeline. It's not clear in his own head. It's obviously not in front of him properly. Um, and he's just getting exposed for lying when he's meant to be there to claim that he isn't a liar that hasn't lied to Parliament. And yet he's there in Parliament misleading them again. What kind of defence is it to say that we had so many of these gatherings, I can't possibly understand which one you're referring to as you are, you are asking, asking me these questions? I think it's um, it's pretty shocking, really. Aisha, as Jerry said, he looked exasperated. He looked even angry at times. And he doesn't really look like a man who is in control of his brief, does he? <laughs> He's- He's often a man not in control of his briefs. I mean, let's be quite honest. <laughs> it's a joke that we made before and we'll make it again. Yeah. The old one for the best. <laughs> but I mean, look, the whole thing is just absolutely sort of hilarious, partly as well because he released this ludicrous like dossier of his defence. And in this day and age, if you're anywhere near serious politics and you issue something with dossier written all over it, first of all, it's basically brass eye. So you first of all, you're in brass eye territory. And so he kind of, he sort of shot his load before he even got, again, not for the first time probably, like got into the <laughs> arena of the, sorry, I can't help myself. I'm very wound up, I'm very exasperated watching this. But he's kind of come in and he's such an idiot that he's basically like given his defence to the entire world, including the, the media and all of us and of course the um, committee. I mean, 
Lord Panic, who is advising him, and of course we've got to do the Panic at the Disco uh, joke, uh, particularly because Disco is often short for discussion, so I think we can actually make that joke. Someone has got to invite Lord Panic on and do a Panic at the Disco joke. I mean, the idea that this man <laughs> has been paid like all this money and the, the advice is so kind of flimsy. And his main defence, certainly you know, before he got into the, the room today, was nobody stopped me from doing the bad thing that I was on telly every night telling you, plebs, not to do. So his arguments, because nobody physically or kind of you know, gave him a piece of written advice saying, Prime Minister, don't go to all of these kind of gatherings, even though he was one that was making the rules, that's his kind of defence. And what's so interesting today, and I think the body language has been, because he's clearly been briefed to sort of come in and calm down and not grandstand. And of course, as the hours have gone on, he just can't help himself. I've just seen him. He's going all kind of the crimson tide is sort of appearing on the cheeks. His little chubby hands have been pointing vigorously at at Harriet Harman. And she's sort of been just like peering over her reading glasses with a very impressive necklace. I think it's a sort of a something that Mr. T would be quite kind of admiring of (laughs) from the 18. But you can tell he's... isn't it? I love that necklace it's, it's it actually looks like you know it could be wound round someone and restrain them for quite a long time <laughs> <laughs> it looks quite it looks quite nautical. You know, so you could be bringing a, a ship into sort of harbour with, with it. But the thing which I think the committee's been really good about, because I think the, the danger was that they would be really useless. They would try and grandstand. It would all fall apart and he would be quite calm. They've actually remained really calm, really, really forensic. I think Bernard Jenkins actually done a brilliant job because what he's done very artfully is he has tested the Prime Minister on his knowledge of his own guidance. And it turns out there's a new set of guidance which has just emerged today retrospectively. We now have this thing called mitigating factors. And now we learn that the guidance that we were all lectured about when people were literally getting, you know, kind of threatened with being thrown in the clink for going for a walk with a takeaway coffee with their best friend. Now we hear, oh, no, no, it it was never about perfection. It was never about perfection. He was not expected to be perfect in the administration of social guidance in number 10 and social distancing. It was about the imperfection. And now he's saying that if he could go back in time, what he thinks he might have said is that there were lots of mitigating factors that we all could have taken into consideration. It's just utter bollocks, basically. Yeah, the rules are for the little people, not for me. It's the age old Johnson thing, isn't it? Um, it, there's a lot of contradictions here. The one that struck me was that he can, he said he could see why people would have thought that the garden party, which was quite egregious, frankly, was unacceptable. Yes, it never occurred to him at the time that any of the events, these events could have been problematic. How is this possible? My brain is just not is slightly exploding with the with the cognitive dissonance here. It's amazing. That's one of his big defences. Is you know, I, I was only in these rooms for a couple of minutes. I had no idea they would escalate into like you know people shagging over the photocopying machine and children's swings getting broken. It's like what you, you're basically like number ten is full of your mates and your wife's mates who are all renowned booze hounds. How did you not think this was going to escalate? In in any way, it, it's just as you say. I mean, look, we can joke about. It. I think that's that's my slight defence mechanism, but it's it's so upsetting for people to watch. It is. It's terribly upsetting. Somebody who works very very hard on um, the campaign for justice for the people with long COVID, um, and somebody that 
has you know lost people to covid close family members could not say goodbye properly to people in care homes who didn't die of covid but died nonetheless it is incredibly painful but i think your point about rose this how could he not have seen that this could optically look terrible uh, or may come back to bite him it, it's it's about the entrenched privilege it just comes mm. back to this entitlement and also i think I, I think a lot about it of this as well is and this is really the, the measure of the man it's never his fault it's always someone else's fault it's now the fault of officials who should have intervened and said to him Prime Minister, I know you're the leader of this country and you're you're at the podium every night, but you 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 should you should stop us from doing this. You sh- you should be. It's all you know. It, it was the Times' newspaper at one point. He he said it was the Times. Harriet Harman's. Fault. I'm waiting for Keir Starmer to 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 be brought into it. It's got always, ambushed by that cake. Ambushed. Got ambushed by was, it. He, he, I'm waiting for the, the witch trials of Boris Johnson over the. He is always the victim. It's never his fault. And and. It, the, the people at fault are the people who should have stopped him. That's always the, the kind of rationale. Yeah, he claimed today that he never saw the cake. Um, the cake was in a box and two of his staff later found it and ate it. His staff later found it and ate it, but he had uh, he didn't even see it. And yet he his staff leaked the story to the Times, which apparently exonerates him because the fact that they leaked it to the Times showed that it was okay. Oh. And just one other thing, because I'm just so fizzing with rage about this. When you look at who got the fixed penalty notices in Downing Street, well, this is such a measure of the leader that he is, throwing people left, right and centre under the bus here. And the number of younger women who got these fixed penalty notices because they were the sort of people in the firing line because in the job segregation that is politics, a lot of younger women do the organising of parties and logistics and things like that. And you're just like, wow, what, what, a, what an officer and a gentleman. I mean, amazing. Can I just say on the point about the leaking of the story to the Times, I've been kind of chomping at the bit to almost uh, d- defend our honour here a little bit. Um, one of Johnson's claims at the inquiry and in his evidence has been that this was officially briefed to the Times. That's not my understanding. My understanding is that we have a, um, a very um, talented, if I do say so myself, lobby team who have sources where they find these things out. Um, Johnson's defence is, you know, how could we think we were doing anything wrong because it was briefed? Well, it wasn't read out at lobby. You know, this was this was found out by our team um, and put in the paper. And the reason that you didn't see it in multiple papers is because that's exactly the reason. It wasn't some official briefing um, in the same way that there were claims that the photos, because they were taken by the official staff photographer, weren't hidden and they appeared on the Flickr account. Well, they never appeared on the Flickr account. And I mean, why is the official photographer taking photos of parties in normal times, let alone um, during COVID? Uh, So I think that's an important nuance which is being lost um in the in the argument um and of course i would say that it's much more down to my colleagues uh, skill than any handouts from number 10 yeah that is an important point because uh, in a previous job i had to spend a lot of time uh, doing doing photos of this kind and looking through the number 10 flicker account and certainly there were no pictures on there that suggested that number 10 staff were partying at all Naomi, for me, one of the most damaging things about Partygate is the damage it, it does to any notion of equality before the law. You know, things like the three people were fined for sitting in a car together in Harrow on New Year's Eve 2020. There were countless examples of people being fined for, often for them, life change, life-changing amounts of money 
for breaking lockdown rules. Sometimes in, you know, and, and not really having the opportunity as Johnson has endlessly had the opportunity to do to contest those fines. But is it nonetheless important that we go through this inquiry to establish whether he misled the Commons? Yes. Um, and I think if there's another thing I've taken from today, it's that the Met Police, who we are going to come on to in a little bit more detail later in the show, could and should have issued far more fixed penalty notices uh, against those in number 10, including the Prime Minister, um, from what he's been saying. And there is very little justice in all of this. And we have very, very few levers of control um, over those that govern us. Um, Under this government, we have fewer and fewer of them. They are being eroded with every bill that becomes an act at the moment, Uh, this authoritarian creep that we've talked about so often, whether it's making it more difficult to vote, whether it's curtailing our right to protest, you name it, uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to hold these fuckers to account. And this is one of the few ways some kind of justice may be able to be uh, levelled at Johnson. Um, If he is found to have misled Parliament, then we are one step closer to removing this man from our body politic for the time being at least. Um, So it is important, even if it isn't the justice that some of us would have hoped for. I would really back that up because, look, we don't know what's going to happen. Just just to give people an update, he's now gone, the red mist has descended. He's now yelling at the committee, saying that they're not impartial. So that's where things have sort of got to now, even though it's a conservative majority on the um, on the committee. But I think Naomi is right. Look, there will probably be uh, an element of disappointment at the end of, of all of this. I very much doubt that the sanction will be so extreme that he is expelled from parliament or that he is you know recalled in terms of his constituency but i think that the spectacle of him having to sit here for for this number of hours and really get forensically grilled is important for for all the reasons we've set out it's important for for us as commentators and journalists but it's really important for the public and i think if it does anything good it will hopefully send a shot across the bow of other MPs to just remind them that you cannot just go around lying in Parliament. You know, we got to a stage where Don Butler got thrown out of Parliament for using the word liar, not allowed to call somebody a liar in the chamber because of all of the arcane rules. People have felt very frustrated with the quality of the debate in the chamber because of that. They have felt that the Speaker doesn't do enough to really clamp down on what is essentially disinformation going on in in the chamber. I hope that this will kind of just remind MPs that actually sometimes the House can get together and it still matters. You know, you're trying to all play by the rules with varying degrees, of course, shades agree, but trying to just remind MPs that you have got to come to the House and you have got to try and attempt to be truthful. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because Boris Johnson has told so many lies in his career. I mean, he was sacked from the Times for making up a quote. He was sacked from the front bench by Michael Howard for lying about one of his affairs. He may well leave the Commons because he lied about parties at number 10. And yet behind all this is the biggest and by far the most consequential lie, you know, the, the promise that Brexit would make Britain a better place and the huge effect that has had on our, on our country. 
Do you think, Aisha, that he will ever be held to account in a meaningful way for the massive lie that was Brexit? Sadly, no, because I think people of his ilk feel upwards. He will just continue to whatever happens, even if he does leave Parliament in, in any sort of way, he will make an astonishing amount of money. He can sadly have any platform he he really wants. But I think that the justice, if there is any, is the fact that his own downfall was so spectacularly fast and it was largely self-inflicted. And I think there is no way for him to come back. I mean, Tory MPs watching this kind of spectacle of this lying human shambles today with with people all up and down the country reminded of all the things that you and Naomi have spoken about, the loss, the grieving, the anger, the iniquity of the rules. Lots of Conservative MPs, particularly those you know who are seeing their majorities getting whittled down, the idea that this guy is going to come back. I think that's where the, the justice is. That's probably cold comfort for, for many who would probably like to see him get sent to The Hague. There's a bit of poetic justice in the fact that on the day that he is, at the precise moment he's at the Privileges Committee, having his reputation properly trashed, is when Rishi Sunak gets that Brexit deal through. I mean, that is probably a little bit of poetic justice, but I think that's about as much as as we can hope for. Jerry, if the committee recommends that Johnson is suspended for at least 10 days, and if the Commons endorses that in a vote... There's an automatic recall mechanism. And what that means is that his constituents in Uxbridge have six weeks. If 10% of them sign a petition to recall him, there'll be a by-election. What will Tory MPs be weighing up, do you think, as they decide how to vote? And could they prefer to leave the final judgment on Johnson to his constituents? Or will they hold back from doing that? Well, I think this builds slightly on what Aisha was saying just there, in that Tory MPs watching this won't think Boris Johnson is the saviour that he used to be. You know, in a previous job, um, I used to work for the Yorkshire Post and I was in the Red Wall in 2019. And it is not a exaggeration to say that he was heralded as a hero when he was coming around and doing those, um, you know, election tours. I've never seen anything like it. You had normal people like who shouldn't be interested in politics as much as, you know, weirdos like us are standing on the side of the road with massive banners saying, we love you, Boris. Like, it was extraordinary. I don't think that same thing would happen now. But I do think that Tory MPs would probably prefer to hand over that decision to his constituents so they can wash their hands of it, right? I mean, if you look at the attacks on the Conservative members of this committee over the last few weeks by Boris Johnson allies talking about them, you know, having to do the right thing, the the whipping up of the membership to email them to support him and things like that from a certain section of the party... You can see why someone might not want to get involved in that and keep their head down and basically just not get involved in the psychodrama again. Um, Again, like Aisha said, with the whittling majorities. So I think that is on the the one side of it. And they might just say, well, do you know what? This is down to the electorate then. Let the electorate make their decision. I think that's probably one, the easier way out, but also two, probably the more democratic way out, right, for them to actually have their say. Now, Look, I don't know how that would go. Every time I've been to Boris Johnson's constituency, people tend to quite like him because he has that, you know, foolish clown manner. And when he goes around and visits the schools and businesses, everyone quite enjoys it and they have a good time. But I think in the same way, 
almost that constituents in Matt Hancock's constituency got sick of being drawn into a national story when really all they wanted was a local MP. It may be the case that Boris Johnson's constituents are starting to go the same way. And I noticed earlier the Lib Dems have announced their candidate for Uxbridge who would stand against him. He um, had someone die during the COVID pandemic, was very kind of, you know, he's very strident and involved in all that. And I think they very obviously, as they would, fought about the type of person they would want to put up against Boris Johnson if that by-election is held. Um, and, you know, Labour's done the same. So the opposition parties are ready for it. You know, I think that there is a possibility that that could happen and it will be fascinating and could be the end for Boris Johnson, a man that we know wants to come back to number 10 to kind of crash and burn. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This one's from Nick Cowan. He says, over the last few days, I've read reams of op-eds and listened to numerous left-wing podcasts talking about the Iraq war. In all that time, no one has mentioned oil as a reason for the invasion, which was certainly the central one as top US military and political figures have attested to in the years since. Why does the panel think that oil isn't part of the conversation? Is it because people don't like to be reminded that we invaded another country to get at their natural resources? Naomi, What's your perspective on this? Are we are we rewriting history here? Well, it's a good question because when I cast my mind back to that time, which was when I was still at university, first political march I participated in, the commentariat around the invasion was a lot about oil and you know and, and certainly student demos and protests and debates that were happening within the student unions often focused on that um and it 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 was the you know sort of prevailing left argument was oh we're just doing this um in the interest of big oil and and people are dying as a result both there and from our own forces and and all the rest of it so I have been I I sort of agree with him that it, it has been notable the reflections and all of these sort of retrospectives of uh, the event 20 years ago that we've been hearing on multiple <laughs> news uh, programs and podcasts over the last week or so haven't touched on it much at all. But I mean, I'd be really interested in in Aisha's perspective on it as somebody sort of, you know, more, more embedded in the Labour Party than me as to why that is now. Why has that narrative sort of moved on? It's a really, really good question. And I've really been um, kind of really absorbed by listening to a lot of the, the the debate and the discussion 20 years on. I was in a really unusual position. I was actually a civil servant and I went on the march and I was also working at 10 Downing Street as well. I was doing a secondment in the press office while all of this was was going on. And I ended up getting sent to Iraq, which was absolutely bizarre. I had like no like idea why it was partly because I was the chief press secretary at the Department of Trade and Industry and we were very you know what was really fascinating about that is the war was won really quickly so quickly that nobody really had a plan for what to do afterwards because it all happened so fast and then of course as soon as the sort of war was over there was this sort of rush to try and get reconstruction 
contracts. So the Department of Industry was trying to kind of organize groups of people to go out there so that British companies could get a sort of slice of the action, if you like. And I was sent over to um, with Patricia Hewitt, who was the then uh, Trade and Industry Secretary. And it was absolutely bizarre. I ended up getting sent out by myself in advance. And it was the most terrifying experience of my life. I mean, I had to go to the Foreign Office and get sort of a Kevlar vest and I got this lecture about what I should do when our car got shot at not if our car got shot at it was absolutely you know there was no kind of um I mean look on one level it was an interesting thing to do but that was massively outweighed by just the sheer terror of of the situation but what what was interesting is even though there was a lot of talk about very lucrative reconstruction contracts and of course there were loads of security companies going out there and things like that I never really had I never really heard much of the so there's definitely a commercial imperative. I didn't hear that much about the oil stuff, but I think that's more because the politics, the misguided politics about why we went in was to prop up America for sort of for the Labour Party to kind of really be on the front foot with America looked like it was not a kind of lefty, wet liberal kind of organization. It wasn't so much about oil or commerce. That was not true of the Americans. So I think that very, very good question is probably more likely to be tested with some of our counterparts in America. Because if you listen to the Rory Stewart conversation with Alistair Campbell and the rest of politics, which is really, really good, he says when he was out there, it was very, very clear that from the American side, there was a very, very hard line kind of commercial Uh, He doesn't really mention oil, but he kind of hints at it, but also a kind of a reconfiguring Iraqi society to to bend to American values. And I'm sure oil is probably wrapped up in that. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I I think from the coverage I've I've read, I think people have been very anxious to focus on what we now can understand very clearly as the folly of having invaded Iraq to allegedly bring democracy to it. Now, it may well have been that it probably was that that was only a cover story for, you know, the the oil related interests and the commercial opportunities, as we've been saying. But I think people have been very anxious to expose just what a vainglorious idea it was that we could ever impose democracy on a country like Iraq. And for me, that that seemed to be what what's really come across and to sort of and try and take the in hindsight view. Let's not make that mistake again. Yeah, I think I think that's true. There's a lot of that. And I think the other thing which has really come across is just how badly equipped both America and Britain were for what to do afterwards. You know, there was that phrase, winning the war, but did you win the peace? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, you know, it's 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 a real it's a huge lesson. But then of course, have we learned the right lessons? I mean, you know, I go back to the when I worked for Ed Miliband and the Labour Party, the Syria vote, the long kind of shadow of Iraq means that many people in the Labour Party would never, ever, ever want to take any military intervention again. And that's not necessarily the right thing either. I spoke with Robin Cook's former advisor, and he said that he thinks had Robin Cook been alive today, he would not be saying never do any military interventions. He would be saying if you're going to do it, and sometimes there are occasions to do it, you have to have very, very clear boundaries and tests and rules and legality. And very clear evidence. 
<laughs> yeah. That was the other thing. The fact that the intelligence was was really not sufficiently stress tested. That is another huge part of the of the sort of post-mortem. Two years ago, a Met police officer kidnapped a 33-year-old woman, raped and strangled her. Sarah Everard's murder will be remembered not just because she was killed by a policeman, but because of the crackdown on a vigil held in her memory in South London. Met officers arrested women for alleged breaches of public order and the Coronavirus Act. The independent review into the Met's culture and standards came out this week. Even with all we have heard about the Met in recent years, it still makes grim and shocking reading. Aisha, it is really hard to trust the Met now, isn't it? When I see officers in London, I immediately feel nervous. I think that's the the great tragedy of of where things are. I mean, I think so many people, not just women, I think minority people as well, just do do not feel that the trust that they have any trust in the police, that they that the police is there to protect them. But what is so dispiriting about this is that, you know, 20 odd years ago when I was a, a young press officer at the Home Office, I worked on the McPherson report into the the way the Met handled the uh, murder of Stephen Lawrence. And it found that the Met was institutionally racist. And here we are, you know, 20 odd years later, and nothing has changed. In fact, it's got worse because it's now institutionally misogynistic as well uh, and institutionally homophobic. And there just does not seem to be not just the will, but the actual kind of comprehension. I'm listening to Mark Riley the other day, and he's doubled down on it twice now. He has said he does not recognize that phrase institutionally racist or misogynistic. And I'm afraid if you don't even understand the diagnosis, how are you going to get the prescription right? It's not just, it's so deeply, deeply upsetting that we have a police force that so many people just have no faith in. Yes, the whole uh, row about institutional racism and whether the Met is institutionally racist uh, has has re-emerged, as you say. And I, I can understand intellectually why Rowley presumably just doesn't want to have his better officers, some of whom may have actually been victims of this internal racism and sexism and homophobia themselves. He doesn't want them to be associated with the term. So I can see why he's doing that. Jerry, is is there a danger that this becomes partly a row about the language we use to describe the Met rather than the really difficult question of what we do about the Met? Yeah, I think so. Look, I agree with Aisha that I watched that broadcast around um, the other morning as well. And the fact that Mark Riley would not just say, you know, that it was institutionally racist was shocking. And I was, you know, almost screaming at the TV being like, just say it, man, just say it. And then in the same breath, he's saying, you know, um, I'd like to thank all my officers. And I think that speaks to what you were saying there in that obviously there are many good Met officers, but is that the day to say it? I mean, like I'm no comms professional. I'm on the other side of the feds, obviously writing down what the people have said. And I've never been a press officer. I've never been a comms expert, but I do know when something sounds shit and it sounded really shit, you know, that is a day to hold your hands up and say, we we accept everything that's in this report. We are going to change it. This is not good enough. You're dead right, Jerry. I mean, Casey herself pointed out, I could have used the word organisational. I could have used the word systemic. What difference does that make if you're a young black man living in London or a woman or a member of the LGBTQ plus community and you've been crying out for someone to call out decades and decades of discrimination that you faced at the hands of the police? It's totally a distraction from the underlying 
issue. And I, I agree with you, what terrible, terrible comms handling by the the Met Police Chief. I also think he, you know, spoke, he was questioned on BBC Breakfast. And I think, you know, the BBC comes under a lot of flack, but I think they did a brilliant job um, on, uh, on, on this and said, you know, you were a frontline officer. Did you not see this? And he said, no, no, I didn't. And I thought, well, how how can you possibly be there now sorry i mean it's just it's just it's just crazy to me i think what this gets to and what we've all sort of hit the nail on the head what he is thinking about rose as you said is about the the remaining staff uh, at the met and you know it is true to say morale is is very low also i have uh, you know uh, i know some people who i have spoken to people who are training at the moment and they tell me that morale is so low and the service is so hollowed out. Everybody is like at sort of breaking point just in terms of their workload, plus the the fact that they are all pariahs now as well. So it's, it is a lot for the Met. And I think that is a reasonable thing to, to acknowledge. But at the same time, there are so many people in the police, particularly men, who are absolutely pushing back at this. When I interview police people on my show, and I do it regularly, all the former male uh, detectives say this is all kind of it's all gone too far you wouldn't say all gps were bad because of harold shipman blah 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 all the female detectives say there is a massive cultural problem in the police there is such a disconnect such a gender um disconnect there and what was also really troubling at the end of the today program they had somebody on from the police federation which of course is the sort of trade union for the kind of average bobby on the beat and one of their kind of regional leaders has had absolutely kind of sort of slammed the report and sort of said this is too much you're slagging all of police officers off here this is not okay then the kind of overall chief of the police federation came on and wouldn't criticize that person. He said, that's not my job to criticize what that regional person has said. You know, yes, we've got to take responsibility, but I'm not going to criticize him. And that actually really exposes the kind of culture of, yes, some, they will admit that there is a problem, but it, it's someone else. It's not them. And they're very, very defensive about it. I tell you what it reminds me of. I was um, in a previous life a health correspondent in an area where the mental health trust was judged to be the worst in the country. People were dying. People were taking their own lives on regular occasions. Inquests were coming back saying failings, failings, prevention of future death notices and things like that. Every time you'd write a story about it, the trust's response was, but our staff work really hard and nurses are angels. And it really, really reminds me of that, like this public service um, kind of exceptionalism that some areas of, of, of the pub, uh, public service has where they're kind of, you know, beyond reproach. And I think the police are reacting in a very similar way that I saw at the time um, with that. It's not quite the same, but it's very similar vibes. Naomi, there's talk of breaking up the Met potentially. Do you think that would help? Well, <laughs> what... This mustn't be is just another report. I mean, Aisha talked about McPherson report being 20 years ago now. There is now consensus among both the major parties, big thinkers on crime and policing about what needs to change. Casey has called on the Met to either be radically reformed or broken up. So I don't think she's saying it has to be uh, broken up. And remember, this is a pretty long running demand of Nick Timothy, formerly one of Theresa May's closest aides when she was Home Secretary 
Um, and on the Labour front bench, Starmer, key player in the remaking of um, another police force that had badly fallen from grace, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which is re- renamed Police Services Northern Ireland. What I think we need to accept is that successive governments have failed on it preferring that easy option of appearing tough on crime and pro-police rather than asking the difficult questions like why are black people over-policed and under-protected and how do we fix that? Um, So whether it's breakup or something else, the thing that I'm very upset about is the complete decimation of community policing and we need community solutions when you look at the numbers, it's absolutely staggering the number of uh, police stations that have had to close over the last decade. London boroughs um, had their uh, spending on community safety reduced by 42% since the Conservatives took control of number 10 in 2010 and says that, you know, that that, that hasn't recovered at all. Spending on crime reduction has fallen even more dramatically during this time, uh, 58%. And the Met's budget itself is 18% smaller in real terms than a decade ago. So we do need to do a wholesale, you know, systems reform is needed in terms of how they recruit, how they advertise to recruit, the vetting process and all the rest of it. But I think to, to have hollowed out community policing to the extent that the Met has had to do is a really fundamental part of the problem that we've got. Jerry, in the US, we've seen how police brutality and racism can lead to calls to abolish the police altogether. Do you worry about what will happen the next time that there is unrest on the streets and the police have to go in? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, look, I think it's very important to recognise that the way that police service in America is set up is very different to the police service here. So, you know, when we get all the defund the police chants over here, it's not it's not quite the same. Um, but obviously the the um the ethos behind it and the thought behind it is. I do think that we see this on kind of both sides of the fence, whether it's what I would consider legitimate protest, which as Naomi mentioned earlier, is being cracked down on and the heavy handedness of the police there, but also on the side of people like, um, you know, COVID conspiracy theorists who were camped outside Downing Street and we see in Westminster every day, um, vaccine deniers, people like that. I think, you know, you have almost both sides of a bad coin here in that there is over-policing in certain um, areas and then people who are arguably doing genuine damage or are genuine threats are left to, to kind of roam the streets. So, I do think that's wearing a police uniform sometimes. Well, absolutely, absolutely. So look, I think I am worried about it, and I do think that tensions are high in terms in terms of that. And I, but more than anything, I fear the lack of trust for the police. You know, I know people who are police officers, and they're heartbroken about this. Heartbroken that a, a woman like me, who lives in London, who often walks home from the tube late at night because she works late would not be comfortable going up to an officer on their own to to you know say I'm in I'm in trouble I'm in danger and that's heartbreaking for them I think I'm far more worried about that than I am anything else um and look I just think it's a really dire state of affairs and I think that there are questions to answer over funding that we've spoken about but I also don't think the Met can blame all of their woes on that um as ever it's a it's a bit of column A a bit of column B isn't it 
Aisha, does Labour have a plan for overhauling the police? I mean, Keir Starmer used to be Director of Public Prosecutions, after all. He does know about police force and its problems. It's a good question. I mean, I think one would expect uh, Keir Starmer to, to, to have quite strong views on this, and I think he, he probably would, and he has got kind of views on... Uh, sentencing and, and things like that for, for serial serious offences, particularly sort of sexual offences. I mean, Labour's solution is largely, well, it's financial. It's can we sort of restore what was taken away through the austerity years? Remember, Theresa May was famously, you know, told to sort of go away and find more cuts for, for, for the police. So this apps austerity has definitely played a part in this, but you know, Jerry's right, that's not it's not the only thing. But I think, you know, Labour's definitely using this crisis with crime and justice to its advantage, trying to get that sort of advantage over the Conservative Party about the fact that, look, here you have the Conservative Party. They've always been very strong in law and order, yet look at, you know, crime going up. They've just had this announcement this week that actually people are going to get released early from their sentences because of overcrowding and underfunding in prison. So Labour has got a good attack narrative on the Conservatives on law and order, a bit like it does on immigration. But as to how you're actually going to make things better without throwing a substantial amount of cash at this is the tough question because we do know that Rachel Reeves has been very strict with people in terms of how much money they can get. And to Naomi's point, this community neighbourhood policing was seen as a really big success story of, of, of you know, the time when Labour was in power. And I think they want to sort of restore that. But what's interesting is part of these five missions that Keir Starman, I think we're actually going to get some more flesh on the bone in terms of uh, law and order. I think they will want to make this quite a big part of the upcoming general election. I think they'll almost want to head back to quite a Tony Blair slogan, you know, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. I think we're going to be hearing quite a lot of those phrases coming it's back. It's a great slogan. I remember Anand Manon when he was on uh, the show or on Romaniac saying that that was probably the perfect political slogan and they had probably never been improved on. It's nearly the end of the show. So what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week? Jerry, have you got one for us? I have, and it kind of fits the theme of um, misleading Parliament. I mean, is it big-headed to talk about one of my own stories? I'm going to anyway. A couple of weeks ago at uh, PMQs, Ed Davey spoke about a woman called Jean, who um, he said phoned for an ambulance, told it was an eight-hour wait, drove herself to hospital instead, had to pay for her parking, collapsed at the doors of A&E and then died an hour later. Now, look, we're all really aware of the pressures on our NHS. So that's a believable story, right? Tragic and believable could have happened. Turns out most of it not true. Um, A woman called Jean did call an ambulance and was told there was an eight-hour wait, but she was driven to hospital by a family member did not collapse at the um, door of A&E, didn't have to pay for parking because you pay on exit, not entry. And she was in hospital for a week and then she did sadly die. So, you know, there is still a tragedy there. But um, we had this we had this in the paper, but it did fly under the radar a little bit. Ed Davey 
in in contrast to Boris Johnson and to his credit, did go back and correct the record in the Commons once he was made aware. But I think that it kind of highlights that one, there is a correct way to do these things and Ed Davey has done it. But two, there is quite some work to be done sometimes on the back office kind of operation of these things that you can't just take things at face value and then say them in the Commons. So that's the one I wanted to highlight, that it's not just a Conservative thing to get things wrong in the House, but um, but the Lib Dems are very keen to have uh, corrected it and corrected it as soon as possible. It's a, a, I said to the Lib Dems when I called them about this, you know, maybe this is a way you can make an example of how things should be done when you get something wrong. Aisha, how about you? I have been following the SNP leadership um, hustings very closely. And last night, Times Radio hosted the final debate between the three hopefuls, Ash Regan, uh, Hamza Youssef and Kate Forbes. And it was really interesting to actually, you know, I've been sort of listening to them all, but it was actually really interesting to go up to Edinburgh and, and meet people who are really interested in, in the contest. And what I was quite surprised about is the raison d'etre of the SNP is independence. That is the thing that is the, you know, the number one goal. And yet it feels like most of the candidates have sort of given up on, on independence. It really didn't take up a huge amount of, of the questions or, or the debate. Ash Regan has some slightly sort of bonkers plan to make sort of every moment at the um, ballot box a sort of de facto referendum on independence. Good luck with with that. And if she gets, you know, more than 50 percent, they're kind of going to do some sort of universal declaration of, of, of independence and start negotiating with the Westminster government, even though the Westminster government has said we are not going to give you a referendum. That's true of Keir Starmer. That will be true of Rishi Sunak. The other candidates, um, Kate Forbes and Hamza Youssef, were really interesting. They basically confessed, we don't have a proper strategy. Things have gone backwards. Um, Their big ideas are are having a big convention on independence, which is basically a big gathering of of people or having a new vision for independence. So it is extraordinary that the SNP, having been in power since 2007, having had the the trauma of Boris Johnson, a right-wing conservative government, and the shambles of of Brexit, support for independence is actually going down. The other thing which was fascinating is that the trans row dominated the discussion. And I think that a lot of people are switching on to Kate Forbes as a result of that. And I think there is a chance that this culture war stuff has really taken over a lot of the debate and she could win, which will be very, very interesting. But whoever wins, they're going to have a big problem trying to unite the party over this gender reform legislation. Feels like Nicola Sturgeon was the, uh, in retrospect, the thing that was holding the SNP together and making it, you know, the success that it was. Naomi, how about you? Well, a good old fashioned Romaniacs-esque story, uh, although depressing one, um, as you might expect. Uh, The UK's proportion of short-term residents from the EU has absolutely plummeted since Brexit. And this is news out from the Office of National Statistics this week that definitely hasn't had the uh, airing it would have done in a less busy news week, I think. So of the 136,000 non-UK born people living in England and Wales on the day that the census was done um, a couple of years ago now, March 21, I think it was, um, who planned to stay for less than a year, 
just a quarter were from the EU, and that's down 35%. I think that's really sad. Um, uh, the result um, left China, I think, as the most common country of birth for short-term residents, and they've taken the top spot from India uh, on that. And for me, this is just really highlighting how Britain's vote to leave the EU has changed the, the composition of our population and dried up what had been a pretty steady stream of workers that we relied on, but also uh, students uh, and those that participate in schemes like um, the EU's Horizon Europe um, that funds all of that brilliant research and innovation, because that seems to have deterred students from coming to the UK. But I think also EU residents do just feel less welcome in the UK since Brexit. And there certainly seems to be a, a significant amount of evidence that students and temporary workers are shunning the UK because it's, um, you know, take takes such a a more hostile uh, response to migrants and other places where it's just nicer and easier to go and do uh, short-term work. Um, and uh, I think we are the only major economy at the moment whose labour force is still smaller than it was pre-pandemic. So all in all, bad news for those of us that really liked sharing our island with lots of lovely Europeans. I'm not sure if you missed it, but it turns out that um, Jeremy Hunt was going to basically raise the retirement age to 68 um, for people of um, my age and uh, below. And he decided not to do that. And the reason he decided not to do that, apparently, was because life expectancy in Britain is actually now falling. And it is not just down to COVID. It is... Because basically we have underinvested in the NHS and we have made people's lives immensely more difficult and the years of austerity have taken their toll. And so in this, you know, highly developed nation, we are seeing people living less long. So it's, yeah, not the most cheery one, but I thought we should draw attention to it because God knows the government won't be drawing attention to it. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Like Ian Dunt in Podcasters Question Time on Zoom next Thursday, 30th of March. Don't miss it. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to sign up. Hello and a big thanks from me to Dahlia, Robert Mitchell and MG. And muchísimas gracias from me to Sarah Thane, David Franey and Peter Carlton. And finally, huge thanks for your support from me to Johnny Woes, Kim and Nicola Segas. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Ros Taylor with Aisha Hazarika and Naomi Smith. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to this week's Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, we're on the lookout for remarkable stories, like when an Australian man who'd just woken up from a coma was filmed recreating the moment he bought a winning lottery ticket and won again. Then there's brushes with the rich and famous. Everyone remembers what it's like to stand next to greatness, unless you're famous yourself, and we know there's a few of you listening. Your secret's safe with us. So, Naomi, what a remarkable 
brushes with fame or otherwise have you had? <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm gloating. I sort of read this and thought, oh, how am I going to not sound like a massive show off uh, in answering <laughs> this? Um, I guess one of the times that I, I first remember it being a thing and not being rewarded for telling my story was I was seven years old um, and I was at school still in London. This is before we moved to Northern Ireland. And on a Monday morning, our teacher used to make us write a story about what we'd done at the weekend, you know, kind of like improving our literary skills thing. And um, (laughs) I wrote, my mum and dad took me to a party in Oxford it was an underground party and I met Salman Rushdie. It had to be underground because Salman Rushdie has got a fatwa against him. I don't know what a fatwa is. <laughs> then we went for a McDonald's and I had a cheeseburger and a milkshake. You know, it was just like, and, and I remember my teacher saying to me, Naomi. That was a not- teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week. (laughs) 